Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 3 of What If, a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine, and this episode I'll be asking the perhaps slightly terrifying question of what if we never retired? It is certainly a prospect many younger workers will be all too familiar with. This is thanks to doom-laden headlines regarding the state of pensions and how few people, particularly those generations struggling to get onto the property ladder, are saving enough. Indeed, recent research from Wealth at Work found that nearly a third of 18 to 34-year-olds know they should be saving more, with only 16% confident their pensions are on track. The cost of living crisis is inevitably taking its toll, with half of these 18 to 34-year-olds reporting that they have reduced or stopped making regular retirement savings. And it's not only younger workers being impacted. Research last year from Restless revealed that more than one in 10 retirees would consider going back to work because of the increased cost of living. Following something of an exodus as part of the pandemic-spurred Great Rethink, the number of over 50s either in work or looking for work has now returned to pre-pandemic levels, the research found, with some headlines inevitably referring to this as the Great Unretirement. So are we facing a looming pensions crisis? And what will the fallout be for individuals, employers and the economy if soon many people simply cannot afford to ever stop working? Or is this perhaps approaching the topic from the wrong direction? In a world of flexible, hybrid working, where the aim at least is for all work to be purposeful and fulfilling, should the idea of retirement itself be gracefully retired? Should we instead be actively striving for a world where no one suddenly packs it all in in favour of the golf course and gardening? To help me answer these big questions, I spoke to Linda Gratton, Professor of Management Practice at London Business School and co-author with Andrew Scott of The 100 Year Life and The New Long Life. I also spoke to Steve Webb, partner at Pensions Consultants LCP and former Liberal Democrat MP and Pensions Minister. Webb is, of course, famous, at least in HR terms, for overseeing the implementation of automatic enrolment in 2012 and the introduction of pensions freedoms in 2015. So, first things first, has what was at the time described as the biggest shake-up in pension reform for generations been a success? That is to say, will the beneficiaries of auto-enrolment be able to retire comfortably when the time comes? Automatic enrolment is a game of two halves. And we're very much winning at half time in the sense that compared with a decade ago, we've got about 10 million more people into saving, which is fantastic. People from around the world come to the UK to see how we did it. And there aren't many things you can say that of. So that's great. But the contribution levels are, I mean, abject would be unfair, but wholly inadequate for most people. If you aspire to more than a very basic retirement, a mandatory 8% of qualifying earnings going into a pension for not very long is just not going to cut it. So I think the big challenge with auto-enrolment is essentially we got a bit stuck. So in 2017, the government did a review, came up with some quite modest incremental changes. 2022, five years later, none of them have been implemented, even though everybody thinks they're basically sensible. And nobody's going to ask workers to put more in at the moment to a pension. Nobody's going to ask employers to put more money in. The government's apparently broke. So very hard to see where the extra money is going to come in from. Obviously, there's lots of people excluded, like the self-employed and so on. But in terms of auto-enrolment, for me, getting that unstuck, even if you sat down now and said in three years' time, 
we will ask employers to put more in because without that the risk is people will say well hang on you know as i used to say hang on mr webb you set the level of the state pension you set the eight percent i've now reached pension age i can't afford to retire why did you choose those figures surely you chose them because you thought they would be enough and they weren't and the answer is we all know they're not enough it was all that we could get away with at the time that's a disquieting no to auto-enrolment having solved our looming pensions crisis then, unless more reform is on its way. So what of those hoping to retire at the moment? In fact, what worries Steve most is not the plight of 20, 30 and 40-somethings, admittedly being sold a bit of a hollow, comfortable retirement dream courtesy of auto-enrolment, but those about to fall through the gap between the decline of the defined benefit DB pension and defined contribution schemes kicking in and working as they should. I think there's a risk we're living in a bit of a fool's paradise when it comes to at-retirement incomes. So we've still got the legacy of historic final salary type defined benefit pension schemes. We've still got the whole of the public sector accruing defined benefit pensions. But those are working their way out of the system. We are close to something I've dubbed peak DB, peak defined benefit. In other words, from now on, each year, the person retiring next year, the year after, is on average going to have slightly less in current terms defined benefit pension because all these schemes, a lot of them closed 20 years ago. It takes time for that to work through into what's happening at retirement, but it is, we're now seeing it. So I think we're on a downslope. We've dubbed it the ski slope of doom. Nice cheery phrase there. The downslope of defined benefit pension incomes. And then you look for the defined contribution cavalry and you can't see them. They're not even coming over the hill yet because auto-enrolment's great, but the average age of people who've just been auto-enrolled presumably is 40-ish. But it's 20-odd years before, or 30 years before they get to retirement age. So auto-enrolment takes a long time. You know, we only got to full auto-enrolment contributions a few years ago. We took five, six years to phase every employer in. Then we stepped up contributions. It's still inadequate. So in years to come, we will have this huge group of people who haven't got the legacy of DB pensions, who've not built up much DC and who aren't able to afford to retire. Those are the people who will work on out of necessity. Probably a growing minority will be renters in retirement. It's not the norm still, but it's a growing minority. So put all that together. And then ultimately on that supply side, they'll have to work on probably several years. But you have to factor in employer attitudes to all of this because we know the challenge of, you know, made redundant in your early 60s, the challenge of getting a job there. Well, how many employers are going to want to take people on into their mid-70s who can't afford to retire? But is there going to be a job for them? So the emphasis here for Steve is people working several years longer than they want to, rather than large numbers of workers never fully retiring. Though life expectancies are steadily rising, health expectancies for older individuals have improved more slowly, meaning most of us will have one or more health conditions to contend with by our 70s, making retirement unavoidable. Nonetheless, people staying in the workplace for longer will still present employers with a significant challenge, given there will be a growing, potentially exhausted, resentful cohort there not out of choice but financial necessity. But, as Steve has just flagged, the bigger issue than unproductive workers lingering on could be unwillingness on employers' parts to let them stick around, and so people being forced to retire on low incomes. Linda Gratton agrees. Well, I think the more likely scenario, the one we're starting to see playing out, is that people retire but on very low incomes. We'll see poverty really increasing in the over 60s as they retire on much lower incomes than they thought they had. Inflation obviously works against them at the moment in terms of their savings. So even if people really want to work over the age of 60, unless 
our society is prepared to provide opportunities for those people. However highly motivated they are, they're not going to be able to find work. I think that the fact we've seen so many people in their 60s come out of work during the pandemic and not going back in, I think that's a really bad sign. We don't exactly know why they've not come back. The the data isn't really clear enough, but we think it's because they're exhausted. We think it's because they're saying, look, I've just had three or four years where I haven't worked in the same way during the pandemic. I found new ways of working. I don't want to go back to how I worked before. And now what we're seeing is now people are trying to get back to work, but they're saying we can't get jobs. Nobody wants to employ us when we're 60. But the fact is that retiring at 50, it just isn't possible. It really is going to create a life of poverty for lots of people. And more importantly, in terms of intangible asset, work is a great way of getting out of the house, of meeting people, of moving around, of building a social capital. And unless you've got an incredible set of ideas and thinkings and habits and hobbies, not working productively from the age of 50 to the age of 90 seems to me not a very wise choice. Which brings us to that all-important debate around whether it's truly good for any of us to fully retire. Linda's work with Professor of Economics Andrew Scott explores how potentially restrictive the traditional three-stage life of education, work and retirement now is for many people. Organising our time in such a way is the product, after all, of the Industrial Revolution, when recreation and retirement were necessary counterbalances to highly physical work. Now, we have the opportunity to take a more blended approach to work and leisure, the pair argue in their book. Rather than simply extending either the second stage of work or the third stage of retirement in response to increased life expectancy, why not build in career breaks, returns to education and career changes earlier on? Certainly, there are many now working well beyond traditional retirement age, not because they have to, but because they love what they do and or have been given the opportunity to switch things up a bit later on in their careers. But we are a long way from the multi-stage life becoming the norm to the extent it would render the very concept of retirement redundant, Linda says. The challenge with a multi-stage life is You start from the beginning and go through it. You can't invent a multi-stage life if you've led a three-stage life. And I think the challenge for lots of people now in their 60s is that they've led a three-stage life. So they're now preparing for retirement and they're tired, they're exhausted, they've never had any breaks, and that's really hard for them. So my guess is those in their 60s are going to find it very difficult to carry on working into their 70s and the 80s because they haven't really prepared for it. They haven't done what we're suggesting you do in a multi-stage life, which is to take time out, to learn new skills, to think about your working life as a much longer process. So I think it's going to be decades before we change that. It's very fascinating. The book Andrew Scott and I wrote, The 100-Year Life, in Japan has now been made into a book for children. It's now being taught in schools as a way of helping young people realize that they have a long productive life ahead of them and they need to start making choices now about what that looks like. I was so thrilled when I heard that because 
That's exactly what we should be doing. We should be saying to our children, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, you actually have a chance of running a multi-stage life. We can't do it now. I never took a sabbatical. I've never taken any time off. I never really prepared to work into my 70s. I'm going to try and do it, but I didn't make any preparation for that. But my kids have a chance of doing that. But that requires them to understand that, but also organizations to change, to become much more flexible. I think that's beginning to happen. And also governments to change the way they think about education, the way they think about work. So the follow-up book that Andrew and I wrote, which is called The New Long Life, we wrote that really to go back and say, well, what would have to change to make that happen? And we said, we'd have to change the way we educate people. We have to change the way government thinks about it. We have corporations have to change. Uh, Individuals have to change. That level of change is astonishing. It is an astonishing level of change, not least because many employers are not ready to fully support older workers. With age discrimination still rife and flexible working not the norm for all, there is still much work to do, says Linda. Of all the aspects of discrimination, I've felt for years, and I've said this for years, I think ageism is the worst because people just feel fine about saying terrible things about people in their 60s and 70s. You're much more careful now what you say about women or any other minority group. You know, I think that the generational cohort descriptions, Gen X, Gen Y, baby boomers, doesn't help at all. Many psychologists say there's no evidence of it. We should stop using them. But actually what it means is it just lumps a whole group of people in together, the baby boomers, however we're supposed to be behaving as baby boomers. And I think by doing that, it's like any form of discrimination. You don't see the individual from the crowd. As people age, the variance between them gets even wider because then the consequences of your choices and behaviors and so on make you much more of an individual. I went to a party last night. It was a 70-year-old party. They were an entirely different bunch. Some of them had just run the marathon. Some of them were sitting in their homes saying, oh, I'm feeling really old. There's huge variance. So let's not categorize everybody the same. At the heart of not categorising and treating everybody the same will be flexibility. Not just when it comes to working hours and working from home, but reward, for example. Such flexibility around all aspects of the employment relationship is the most important way to support older workers to stay in and thrive at work, says Linda. People of all ages want to make choices. And to make choices, they have to have options, which means that there has to be In terms of work design, flexibility, flexibility about when I work, where I work, how I work, who I work with you. So flexibility sits at the heart of every age group, but particularly people who are elders, people who are in their 60s and over. There's also conversations to be had with older people about how they want to work and how they want to get paid. For example, There is a conversation that's going on at the moment which says it's hard for us to hold on to people as they get older because they get paid more. I think that's a conversation one can have with people because actually the people who need the most money in their life is the 40-year-olds. They're the ones who've got two or three kids. They're exhausted. They've got a mortgage to pay. Older people tend not to have those sorts of financial commitments. I don't mean at all that we should discriminate against older people with regard to money, but I think we could find different ways of paying them so that they have the flexibility they want. This is why reducing hours is such a good idea, because reducing hours means you can reduce pay, which means that you can afford to employ somebody over the age of 60. So I think 
that flexibility sits at the heart, really, of everything that's going to make a difference to the lives of older people. But it is by no means just a case of making a difference to the lives of individuals. In a climate of fierce competition for talent, including and supporting older workers is good for business and good for the economy, as Steve Webb explains. The consumers of tomorrow are old. It's easy to forget that. So I'm 57, so I'm not quite in the age bracket we're talking about, but I have slightly less than perfect hearing. And so in a meeting or at an event, I'm much more attuned to if thought hasn't been given to the sound quality. And I sometimes say to some of my younger colleagues, you do realise that the trustee, pension fund trustee you were talking to, didn't hear what you were saying and they had to ask you to repeat it. I could have told you that because I knew you were mumbling. Now, I know that because I'm 57. If I'd been 27 like they were, I wouldn't have been aware. So I think there is a huge potential here for companies to provide goods that work for a consumer base, which is itself getting older. That's easy to miss, you know, that you kind of think you want the dynamic young people all the time, as it were. But if you don't have the mindset of the people you're selling to, you're not going to succeed. Which gets us on to the crucial question of whether our economies could sustain the levels of employment that would necessarily result from people never retiring or retiring much later in life. Would this be a good thing, economically speaking? Both Steve and Linda agree it would. First Steve, then Linda. I think in many ways, if more of us are working longer and productively so, which is a key caveat here, then that tends to be a positive thing for the economy because these are people who are less likely to be claiming Social Security benefits. If they're doing the right sort of work, it's probably on balance good for their health. These people then have money, they then spend it in the economy. So there's no lump of labour fallacy going on here. There's only so many jobs to be done and if all these 80-year-olds are doing it, then 20-year-olds won't be. I don't think it works like that. One of the marvellous things about being at London Business School is I spend loads of time with professors of strategy. So here's the way that a strategy professor would answer that question. They'd say, think about the economic output of the UK as a cake and everybody gets a slice of the cake. And, and so if you say older people are working, it means that younger people haven't got jobs. That's just arguing about slices of the cake. They said what you should be focusing on is making a bigger cake. And that's really the point. Economies are elastic. We can create any number of jobs we want. It's not that older people are going to take younger people's jobs. In fact, we know that the over 50s can be great entrepreneurs. I don't mean necessarily building a huge empire, but employing a small number of people. That's what people can do. That's what I do. I employ 20 people. I feel really proud of that. So we've got to focus on how do we create wonderful jobs for people, not how do we fight about who gets the job. But Steve is still of the mind that retiring is, on balance, a good thing. He can't, in answer to our headline question, foresee a situation in his or several lifetimes to come where most people work their whole lives. I'm very sceptical about the idea that we'll move to a world where most people just don't retire, particularly given that we are living much longer. The idea that we'll be going on working routinely into our late 80s, early 90s as the norm seems to me both undesirable and unrealistic. It seems to me entirely reasonable to think we'll work longer than we have been used to work, partly because of rising state pension ages, but still think we're talking about perhaps a few years past pension age at most for most 
most people. There will be exceptions. At the top end of the scale, there may be people who love what they do, have some professional skills, they enjoy the networking and so on, and they can dip in. Although, again, even those skills and those networks tend to erode a bit over time unless they're regularly used. So, But at the other end of the scale, the more kind of either the manual jobs or the lower status jobs, I think very hard to do well into your retirement. So there'll be people who are doing those sorts of jobs because they have to, but the second they can afford not to, they will want to stop. I wouldn't want to see a world where we don't have that later phase in life. And of course, Retirement isn't the absence of paid work. It's the presence of lots of other things. And, you know, as a society, we rely massively on volunteering, which is done overwhelmingly by the retired population. With people living in the 90s, their carers are often in their 60s and 70s. So there's an awful lot of caring. And frankly, if we're all out at work, who's going to do all those things? Linda, as you'll certainly have gathered by now, is highly passionate about the opportunity for people to redesign work in a way that suits them at any age. But she still agrees on the importance of retirement to our society and world of work as we find it today. It's right and proper that people retire. You know, one of the great things about living over the age of 65 is that you have an opportunity not to have to work all the time. So what maybe we should be saying to young people is... You can have a different way of living, but you've got to start now. Those intangible assets, your productivity, your vitality, your transformational capabilities, you have to be building those right the way through your life. That's what I teach my MBA students. You have to reimagine life. Which brings us back to the question of how we empower people to retire comfortably at the age that suits them. So what would Steve be doing policy-wise if he was still pensions minister? The big barrier to getting more pension saving from a governmental point of view is the Treasury and specifically the pension tax relief cost of people putting more money in a pension. So every time I put a pound in a pension, it only costs me 80p because the government's putting in the other 20, as it were. So that's a pound of my wages. The government isn't getting their 20 pence on, basically. And the Treasury has this sort of two hats. Half the Treasury is pro-savings, has ISAs and pension tax breaks and all the rest of it and apparently wants us to save. And then the other half is horrified by the cost of pension tax relief and really doesn't want us to. And so that's why we've got stuck. The Treasury is undoubtedly blocking all of this. I don't think DWP would, they'd love to go ahead with all this stuff. So it's as usual, it's the Treasury. We've got that barrier. If something could be done, I think it needs to be done at scale. So for me, that would be the mandatory contributions that everybody has to pay in could go from eight to 10. It should apply from the first pound of of earnings and so on. That would make a huge difference and relatively quickly. I think for the self-employed, we need a version of auto-enrolment. I would say to kick the whole thing off, we'll pay 500 quid with every new open pension account. It's just something so that suddenly Martin Lewis, money-saving expert, he's saying to people, it's 500 quid free from the government here. You'd be stupid not to do it. Something to just give it a push. And although the opt-out rate of the self-employed would be higher than the opt-out rate of employees, because they're those kinds of independently-minded people, it would get an awful lot of people in. And the self-employed are really a big worry from the point of view of pension saving. That's what the government potentially needs to do then. But what is HR's role in helping people retire comfortably at the right time? It is always a tricky area for HR, but there are a number of things that can be done. I mean, I would start with the people who've got some discretionary income. So I'm not so focused on the 20 and 30 year olds who, frankly, once they've been auto enrolled and have stayed in, and most of them do, to be honest, should they spend their spare disposable cash if they've got it on extra pension contributions as opposed to getting out of renting into buying a home? I'm not sure even as a pensions person, I think they should, you know, because in retirement, you want to have no housing costs. What I do think is a couple of things. One is many employers, larger employers in particular, will have generous 
pension arrangements beyond either the statutory minimum or beyond the minimum at which they default people. As a financial decision, a pound that turns into two pounds and your pounds only cost you 80p because of basic rate tax relief is a staggeringly good investment. And yet there are lots of employers who offer this, but because they don't default people into the maximum match, people have to know about it and opt up. It doesn't happen. Or at the very least, publicise it regularly and, and nudge people. Best time to nudge people is when you give them a pay rise because they haven't got used to allocating the extra cash to things. They haven't got used to spending it, basically. So a well-timed nudge could work effectively. Talking of 30-somethings who have mortgages and childcare costs and don't put enough aside for retirement and nudging them to save more, my parting question to Steve was a bit more personal and a bit closer to home. Not what if we never retired, but will this editor ever retire? I'm not a big one for my house is my pension. I I wouldn't argue that. But I do think getting on top of your mortgage, making it less painful uh, and recognising there are phases in your life when you've got other outgoings and not beating yourself up. All I would say is keep the letters, keep the correspondence, preferably open them. But even if you don't open them, put them somewhere safe, because as years go by, people lose track of their pensions. That may change with dashboards. But the number of people who just don't know what pension they've got, don't know what they're worth. So just keeping an eye on it, maybe finding a day once a year to just review it. But just, you know, not being too hard on yourself, just kind of keeping in touch with what's going on seems to me a good strategy. I'm sure you'll get to retire and I'm sure you'll be very productive when you have retired. Thanks, Steve. You have allayed my pensions guilt and retirement anxieties a treat. Roll on, 2054. You have been listening to the What If podcast, brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website.